Hello and welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome and thank you for joining us for the second in a series of four CMEO snacks titled Reinforcing Personalized Care for Uterine Fibroids, Updating Practice to Improve Outcomes. The CMEO snack series is supported by an independent medical education grant from Pfizer. I'm Aymel Hindi, tenured professor and vice chair for research, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. I'm also a gynecologist, minimally invasive surgeon at University of Chicago Medical Center. Health disparity in uterine fibroids is the primary and has been the primary focus for our research for many years. Our fibroid research program has been NIH funded for the last 22 years continuously. And I'm so proud that our program have received recently on July 15, 2023, the Blossom Award by the Wide Dress Patient Advocacy Group. I'm joined today by my distinguished colleague, Erica Marsh. Dr. Marsh, could you please introduce yourself? Absolutely, Dr. Alhandi. Hi, I'm Dr. Erica Marsh. I'm a tenured professor and vice chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist with a clinical focus on fibroids and infertility and a research focus on health disparities, fibroids, and health equity. I too am a recipient of the Blossom Award from the White Dress Project and uh, am NIH funded. And I'm excited to be here today with you, Dr. Alhindi. Thank you, welcome. To open up the discussion today, let me review our learning objective. Assess the role of GNRH antagonists in long-term treatment based on data and aligned to the um, th uh, estrogen threshold hypothesis. To help uh, the audience have a better understanding of the role of GNRH antagonists, I think it's important to start maybe with a brief introduction to the pathophysiology of the uterine fibroids. As you can see on the slide in front of you now, uh, this is based on some research in our lab and of course, uh, a lot of contribution from many other groups. This came from an endocrine uh, review article we published in 2022. If you look on the right, uh, left side of the screen, uh, every uh, female fetus starts with a healthy uh, myometrial tissue. And that also starts from a healthy myometrial stem cell. So now during pregnancies, the, during the sensitive time of the development of the uterus, and certainly in the first few months or maybe few years of life, if unfortunately this myometrial stem cell get exposed to a hazardous condition, this could be uh, environmental pollution, especially things that have estrogen-like structure like phthalate, BSA, et cetera. Or there could be other contributing factors, such as vitamin D deficiency, um, some uh, other factors that we'll talk about in a second. This uh, normal myometrial stem cell, which should support the development of a normal myometrium that will never develop fibroid until the end of the reproductive years around the age of menopause of 52 or so. Unfortunately, this normal myometrial cell then gets converted to an abnormal my myometrial stem cell or at-risk myometrial stem cell. 
And that's the figure in the middle of the screen. Uh, this at-risk myometrium still not abnormal enough to develop fibroid, but it already has been brined or reprogrammed to be at risk. Now, if the individual, if the, uh, the woman then continue to be exposed to these potential risk factors, the same one that we talked about, environmental pollution, vitamin D deficiency, but then additional factors such as increased body weight, obesity, or abnormal bacteria in the uterus or in the gut, what they call microbiome or chronic uh, stress from things like discrimination, uh, uh, racism, et cetera. Uh, Sometimes all of these factors, or some of them combine to increase the inflammation in the wall of the uterus, in the myometrium, enough to tip this stem cell into really being a tumor-forming cell. And then a specific mutation uh, emerged. The most common for fibroid is called MET12 mutation. And once this mutation appeared, then unfortunately, this abnormal myometrial stem cell become a fibroid-forming stem cell, and then start to proliferate more and produce a lot of extracellular matrix, the stuff that we see in the fibroid around the cell, things like collagen, fibronectin, proteoglycan, and that's how fibroid starts. And then not only one, but this keep happening all over the myometrium, and as we know, many of the patients have more than one lesion. And this, ab this abnormal myometrium continue, unfortunately, for the rest of the woman's life. As we all know, even after we remove these fibroids, let's say during myomectomy, they appear again because the soil, the myometrium, the environment already has been altered, and it will just keep producing fibroid until menopause. Estrogen and progesterone are so important for all of what I told you. They are the driver of abnormal myometrium and the driver of fibroid growth, which form the basis for a lot of the things we're gonna talk about today. Uh, another important concept uh, that is very relevant to the pathophysiology of uterine fibroid is the so-called estrogen threshold hypothesis. And the therapeutic window of about 20 to 50 picogram per mil serum level of estradiol. Fibroids love estrogen, and therefore our target for many uh, medical therapeutics has always been to decrease the level of estrogen in the, uh, to form the cornerstone in the management of uterine fibroid, while, of course, trying to minimize the hypoestrogenic adverse side effects. So, Dr. Marsh, would you please uh, uh, walk our audience through an understanding of the relevance of estrogen uh, threshold hypothesis to the pathophysiology of uterine fibroid, as well as the pharmacotherapeutics uh, for them? Absolutely, Dr. Alhendi, I'd be happy to. So as you, as you shared, um, we know that uh, uterine fibroids uh, really um, thrive off of, of uh, exposure to estrogen and progestins, but um, um, here we're really focusing on the estrogen piece of uh, um, the estrogen as a driver of, of their growth. And um, as clinicians, you know, we, we want to do no harm. We know that we want, um, we know that there are tissues in the body that need estrogen to stay healthy. And then we know that there are um, also uh, conditions that our patients get um, that we don't want them to, them to have, um, including fibroids, um, uh, conditions like endometriosis, 
some estrogen responsive cancers even, where we want to minimize the amount of estrogen we have in the body. Um, and so we're trying to find, if you will, that sweet spot where we can we can it, um, identify a window um, where we can protect the bone and prevent patients from having um, some of the vasomotor symptoms that they have from when the estrogen gets too low, but also um, have estrogen levels low enough so that um, uh, estrogen responsive tissues um, that are that are disease tissues like fibroids um, are not getting enough estrogen to grow and are not getting enough estrogen to thrive. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Marsh. So, so we are really in a way lucky because exactly as you said, Dr. Marsh, uh, the sensitivity or the response of different organs in our body to estrogen are not exactly the same. Uh, so we can have uh, enough estrogen to support the uh, health of the bone, for example, as you said, Dr. Marsh, between 20 and 50 picogram uh, per mil of estradiol, uh, which is, is enough to support the bone and avoid the low estrogen side effects, while not that's enough right. to support the, the fibroid growth. So that's, that's in a way, a, a nice uh, difference between organ sensitivity to estrogen that we definitely want to take advantage of to develop effective therapeutics. So since now we have identified the importance of estrogen threshold hypothesis as it relates to uterine fibroid, I think it's important now to discuss the specific role that GNRH play in addressing the estrogen threshold hypothesis through this unique mechanism of action. So Dr. Marsh, would you please walk our audience through a comparison of the mechanism of action between GNRH agonism versus antagonism? and what this means for the hormonal management of patients with uterine fibroids. Absolutely. So just to quickly review, GNRH is um, uh, naturally secreted in the hypothalamus gland and stimulates the pituitary gland to um, produce FSH and LH. Um, FSH in particular um, subsequently um, uh, stimulates the ovary to uh, produce estradiol. Um, now, uh, there are two types of agents that um, uh, uh, are available to, to, um, uh, to impact that, that communication between um, the hypothalamus and the pituitary by GNRH. One class of those agents is called agonist. The other class um, is called antagonist. Now, agonists work by um, honestly initially stimulating GnRH receptors, um, which causes a transient increase in FSH, LH, and subsequently in, in estradiol um, until there is a downregulation of um, receptors and a desensitization, if you will, of receptors to GnRH. Um, and then we see a fall in FSH and LH and subsequently a fall in, in um, estradiol. While the um, ag agonists ultimately lead to a decrease in estrogen, it takes time because it is an indirect effect, if you will. Now, the other class of, of agents, GnRH antagonists, 
um, directly block GnRH receptors in the pituitary. So they are able to immediately or facilitate the immediate decrease in LH and FSH um, and a much more rapid decrease, therefore, in estradiol levels. So while both of these classes of agents ultimately lead to falls in estrogen levels, um, uh, the antagonist class works more directly and leads to a much more rapid and immediate uh, decrease in FSH and LH and subsequently in estrogen. Thank you. Very well said, Dr. Marsh. So uh, another, I would say, major uh, separation or advantage for this newer group of uh, GnRH antagonists is all the uh, GnRH agonists we used to have for the last 20, 25 years, they were peptides. So we really couldn't take them orally because orally. they would mm -hmm. be Exactly. They will be destroyed in the GI tract. So we used to have them by injection or nasal spray, etc. But the, this new family of compounds, the GnRH antagonists, they are not peptide. So we can uh, easily take them orally and actually, you know, the, the two FDA approved medication now available in that family are oral medication, which is so convenient for the patient and easy easy to uh, to utilize and that improves compliance of the patient. So. Excellent. So now that we have explored the unique role of GnRH antagonists, I think it's important we examine the treatment options that we have for the treatment of uterine fibroids. Starting with the medical treatment, it's especially important that providers uh, are uh, adapt to uh, being able to communicate the risk, benefits, and side effects to patients so patients can make informed personal choices when selecting treatment. So, Dr. Marsh, can you please walk us through the medication therapy available and how you would discuss these options with patients in your, in your clinical practice? Absolutely, Dr. Ohendi. Um, I uh, tend to um, start as a first-line agent with uh, combined oral contraceptives. Um, uh, that's a class of medication that many individuals um, have experience with, have taken at some point in their life and are, or, and or are familiar with. Um, and from a, a, a price perspective, um, they, they tend to be uh, um, at the, one of the lower price points of, of, um, of agents that we can start with. Um, um, uh, basically, um, combined oral contraceptives um, work by inhibiting ovulation, um, which, which ultimately lowers um, overall estrogen and progestin secretion. Um, uh, they are, however, associated with um, a slightly increased risk of thromboembolic events or clotting events, and um, uh, as well as a very, very, very low chance of a condition called hepatocellular uh, adenoma. I then typically, if, if um, combined oral contraceptives are not effective uh, in my patients, I tend, tend to transition to um, uh, progestin-only agents and um, uh, typically uh, oral progestin agents as a start. Um, um, they work also by inhibiting um, ovulation, um, thereby inhibiting overall sex steroid uh, synthesis. Um, and they also uh, thin the endometrium um, 
uh, uh, lowering the net amount of bleeding a patient will have. Um, uh, these agents, uh, similar to combined oral contraceptive uh, um, agents, um, are effective with, with bleeding. And in fact, um, with progestin-only medications, um, a small portion, um, uh, a small but significant portion of patients will, will actually stop having periods altogether. Um, the risk of progestin-only agents is um, uh, with prolonged use, specifically of of the the um, uh, the um, injectable agents, um, there's uh, evidence of loss of bone mass. So we you have to we have to be careful with that. Um, um, if progestins, um, um, particularly oral or oral progestins, are not effective, um, I tend to offer patients uh, intrauterine system. Um, that contains um, a levonorgestrel releasing um, uh, uh, mechanism, um, which results in um, thinning out the endometrium and lowering or uh, decreasing the amount of bleeding through that primary mechanism. Uh, depending, though, on the size of the uterine cavity and the contour of the cavity and number of fibroids that, that are potentially in the cavity, that may not be a valuable option um, due to increased risk of um, the advice being um, uh, expulsed uh, uh, or, or, or poorly retained. If all of these agents um, fail, I then um, will offer the patient um, a GnRH antagonist. Um, uh, we've just reviewed the mechanism for GnRH antagonist, and um, as you highlighted, Dr. Alhindi, um, these um, medications are good options because they um, can be taken orally um, um, in contrast to the GnRH agonist. Now, um, as we said previously, these agents um, immediately block uh, the uh, um, impact of GnRH on the pituitary, and which leads to the immediate decrease in FSH and LH and an immediate state of hypoestrogenism. That low estrogen level leads to not only um, a decrease in uterine bleeding, and in many patients, um, um, no further uterine bleeding, but in some patients also leads to a decrease in uterine volume. The challenge with GnRH antagonist or, or agonist, um, I, I tend to use antagonist primarily just because um, they, patients prefer an oral mechanism, is, is the loss of bone mass with prolonged um, use. But um, as we'll discuss later, there are some agents that actually include a small amount of estrogen and progestin so that that bone loss is, in fact, um, minimized. Sperms are another class of, of medications that have been shown to um, decrease uh, um, uh, inhibiting, excuse me, ovulation. Um, uh, um, I don't. I do not regularly use um, sperms in my patient population, um, but but um, there have been some published uh, small trials um, uh, um, uh, in U.S. populations, and actually very large trials in European populations where sperms have been shown to be highly effective. Unfortunately, um, the, the primary um, protocol and, and um, medication um, 
that has been shown to be effective um, in fibroids in the large European studies is not approved by the FDA um, uh, in the U.S. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Marsh, for this comprehensive uh, coverage of all the, really, you covered all the medical treatment options for uterine fibroids. Uh, just a couple of uh, points. Uh, you mentioned SPERM. So for our audience, SPERM stands for Selective Progesterone Receptor Modulator, things like Ulipristal, for example. But as you quite correctly said, uh, I want to emphasize this is not approved in the United States, uh, never achieved approval by the FDA for uterine fibroids. And, and indeed, uh, uh, it was approved in Europe and Canada and other countries for a while. But as you quite correctly said, Dr. Marsh, uh, because of potential liver issues, um, this uh, approval, even in other countries, has been very limited to only very specific cases and so on. So, no, this is fantastic coverage. I just want to say, and, and it's really great to, to kind of uh, demonstrate maybe different patterns of clinical practice. Uh, I personally, and maybe it's a reflection of uh, many of the patients I uh, see with uterine fibroids have already tried things like birth control pills, et cetera, and potentially failed. That's why they yes. get uh, to see me. Uh, I actually uh, like to uh, quite early uh, use uh, oral GnRH antagonists, the two options available uh, in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, approved by the FDA, as we know, uh, uh, because they have really gone through a very rigorous, uh, large uh, phase three. Uh, clinical trial program against uterine fibroids. Many of the other options that we have been using and improvising in a way for years to help our fibroid patients, we have been really uh, improvising, as I said. We, we have uh, be, uh, built a lot of this on uh, accumulation of clinical practice, uh, kind of uh, some kind of common sense mechanism of action, et cetera, to thin the endometrium, as you said, but the many of them have not really gone through a rigorous uh, clinical research programs in patients with fibroid. Mm -hmm. So now with the two available FDA-approved oral GnRH antagonists, I uh, personally in my practice tend to use them quite early uh, to help uh, my patients with uterine fibroids. Mm -hmm. Um, so um, now uh, we have covered the medical treatment options very well. Thank you, Dr. Marsh. Uh, could you please now do the same and discuss the surgical and interventional treatment options that are currently available relating uh, uh, how you communicate them with your patient and while also discussing relevant selection strategy for providers? Absolutely, Dr. Alhendi. So in terms of surgical and interventional options, I'll start with the surgical options um, for, uh, um, for fibroids, and they are um, one, myomectomy, and two, hysterectomy. Now, myomectomy, as, as we know, is, um, involves the removal of the fibroids themselves, but leaving the uterus intact, whereas hysterectomy um, involves uh, removing the entire um, uterus. Um, hysterectomy is the only definitive therapy that is available for fibroids 
um, the only therapy that we have, if you or only intervention, I should say that we we have where we can tell a patient we're sure you are never going to get another fibroid. Unfortunately, hysterectomy is not a viable option for many of our patients. Um, particularly patients who want to maintain the ability to bear children or simply just want to keep their uterus because they want to keep their uterus independent of any uh, any plans for future childbearing. So um, um, uh, for patients that want definitive treatment and are done with childbearing, hysterectomy is a very reasonable surgical option. For patients that um, want to retain their uterus, um, uh, myomectomy is a much more appropriate um, uh, surgical option. Now, with both of these surgical procedures, there are many different approaches that can be taken. They're going to be driven by the size of the fibroids, the number of the fibroids, the nature of the fibroids on imaging. Is there con any concern um, um, about the appearance of the fibroids that they may not be fibroids? And it also is going to depend on the risk profile of the patient and the skill of the of the um, uh, of the healthcare provider. Um, um, the different types of approaches include um, open procedures that typically involve larger um, surgical incisions, longer hospital stays, and longer recovery times. Um, those types of approaches are typically used in patients with many large five, many and or large fibroids. Um, there's also um, minimally invasive procedures that um, uh, physicians like Dr. Alhindi um, uh, uh, perform um, uh, uh, that uh, can be done laparoscopically or um, uh, um, with the robot. There are also, um, th those procedures involve um, anywhere from perhaps uh, three to occasionally four or five very small incisions in the abdomen. Um, they um, Sometimes the patients can go home the same day. Sometimes they may spend one night in the hospital. And the recovery time is typically much shorter than it is with open procedures. Um, there's also um, an approach called hysteroscopic myomectomy, where there are actually no, no incisions at all. Um, and where the uh, um, fibroids are approached via the cervix. So um, uh, um, the entire procedure is done uh, via instruments that are inserted via the vagina through the cervix into the uterine cavity, and fibroids are, are essentially shaved down um, and removed that way. You know, there are limitations um, for many of these procedures, depending on size, again, on patient health um, and medical history, um, patient goals, um, physician comfort. Um, but um, the primary driver for really selection of these, for any of these procedures should be um, the patient choice and safety, of course. Um, there are two um, procedures performed um, in addition to the surgical procedures by our um, uh, interventional radiology colleagues. One is called uterine artery embolization, and the other is called MRI-guided focused ultrasound procedure. 
um, up between these two, uterine artery embolization or uterine fibroid embolization, as it's always as it's also known, um, is is the uh, a far older of the procedures. Um, there's much more data on that procedure, and this is a procedure where um, 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 the vessels that feed the uterus and the fibroid are accessed by the um, uh, radiologist via the groin area, and catheters are used to block the blood supply to certain parts of the uterus that, and to fibroids directly. So the result is that there's a decreased blood supply um, to the fibroids, um, and um, uh, that involves um, ultimately um, shrinkage of the fibroids and a decrease in bleeding. Um, I think this procedure is generally um, uh, well received. It, it is not ideal for all kinds of fibroids um, and is associated with a recurrence rate um, of about um, of about 20% or so um, uh, at, le at really at less than three years. Um, we also um, currently this procedure is not approved. Um, by the FDA for patients who who uh, want uh, to the ability to um, have children um, in the future. So um, for patients that are done with childbearing, um, uh, that the uterine artery embolization or uterine fibroid embolization um, is uh, um, and and those patients who are having bleeding and or bulk symptoms, that's a reasonable um, procedure to offer patients, um, particularly patients who are not good candidates for or who simply decline surgical intervention. The other interventional radiological um, uh, treatment option, which is the MRI-guided focused ultrasound procedure, um, uh, is a procedure where we use um, high-density ultrasound waves to essentially destroy um, uh, a fibroid tissue. Uh, I think that um, this is uh, this procedure is is again one of the newer procedures. It is non-invasive, so um, that that has appealed to some patients, um, and it also has a short recovery time. Um, uh, the the concern um, with this is that um, um, the symptom improvement profile is not as good as it is with surgical options or UAE. And it is only um, uh, the, the, the patients for whom this is a, a, a this procedure uh, can work um, are are highly specific. Um, the fibroids have to be in a certain place of a certain size, and so that they're and have a certain number, quite frankly. And so there are many patients for whom um, this this procedure um, is not uh, um, perhaps the ideal treatment option because. Um, the the uh, the effectiveness of the the treatment is not um, uh, uh, um, as generalizable as some of the other treatment options. This is also a treatment where um, um, its impact on future fertility um, is is. Um, you know, this is not a procedure that would be recommended for patients who um, who uh, had plans for future childbearing. Um, there's a lot more I could say about all of these procedures, uh, Dr. Alhendi. Um, we could spend, you know, hours talking about any one of them, but I think that in a nutshell, um, you know, speaks to um, what they are. 
um, perhaps the ideal patients for for all for each of the categories um, and and when you wouldn't want to offer those treatments to patients. Um, do you have anything to add? Uh, actually, I, I love this uh, last uh, comment uh, because this would be a great segue because I was just about to remind our audience that if they are interested in more information on important consideration when assessing, diagnosing, or clinically managing uterine fibroid, they can access uh, our program titled Guiding the Clinical Management of Uterine Fibroids on this same educational hub, which they will find a lot more information on all the things we talked about. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Marsh. So after discussing the surgical and interventional strategy now, I want to take maybe a closer look at the safety, efficacy, and long-term treatment outcome of GNRH antagonists in practice, uh, because these really are the uh, newer, uh, exciting family of compounds uh, that received FDA approval recently in the last few years. So I'd like to, to maybe zoom a little bit on that. Uh, with this newer treatment options, I think it's important providers are aware of the most up-to-date literature so they can ensure patients are able to make informed decisions before selecting a specific treatment. So, Dr. Marsh, would you please outline for the audience uh, the importance of the Liberty uh, program and the Ilaris program uh, for practitioners? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, Dr. Alhindi, these, um, there are two um, agents that are currently um, FDA approved that fall into that class of GNRH antagonists um, that we talked about earlier. So again, oral agents that directly antagonize um, GNRH at the level of the pituitary. Um, both of these um, products, um, which are Relagolix and Elagolix, um, uh, have been well studied and have uh, um, completed large um, uh, uh, randomized controlled trials um, uh, that have been um, pu both published in high impact journals that are available for for um, for anybody in the audience to review. Relagolix is a single use per day agent, so one time a day agent um, that uh, includes. Um, uh, combination theory of a small amount of, uh, of uh, estrogen and progestin. Um, um, the estrogen um, is to make sure that we are um, optimized protecting bone and minimizing vasomotor symptoms, um, but is at a low enough level that we are not feeding the fibroids, if you will. The progestin is included because we cannot give unopposed estrogen in, in, uh, in patients that have a uterus, as you well know. So we have to give um, estrogen, excuse me, we have to give progestins um, when we're giving patients um, estrogen to protect the endometrium. So that is, the, that is why we give the estrogen, again, to protect the bone and to minimize vasomotor symptoms, and we give the progestin to protect the endometrium. And that is the relagolix. Um, which is a one-time-a-day therapy, um, and that is FDA-approved for up to two years of use. The other agent that we have is um, Elagolix, um, which is, again, also a GnRH antagonist um, that can be given with um, ADVAC therapy, specifically an estrogen and a progesterone for uh, the reasons that we've already mentioned, to minimize vasomotor symptoms, um, to protect the bone, 
while not giving too much estrogen as to feed the fibroid or promote fibroid growth. Um, similar to Relagolix, Elagolix is FDA approved for up to two years um, a use, but different from Relagolix, Elagolix um, requires uh, being given twice a day instead of once a day. Now, both of these agents are associated with improved heavy menstrual bleeding, as well as a maintenance of bone mineral density, which is something that um, all of us at, as providers um, struggle, struggle with. I think the primary difference um, in the two agents, again, is that Relagolix is once a day, Elagolix is twice a day. Fantastic. So once again, well said. I think the way you have presented the information makes it very clear for the audience how the newer agents offer symptom relief. Uh, I would say unlike uh, other treatments in this space. Um, what I also like, particularly Dr. Marsh, about those uh, two uh, new FDA-approved oral GNRH antagonists, as I mentioned earlier, they are, uh, came to us after rigorous high-quality, large phase three clinical trial program. Yes. Uh, yes. Some of them include close to a 1,000 patients. Um, so, so we have data that we uh, are reliable and, as you mentioned, published in high-impact journal. Um, many of my patients also like to know exactly what to expect. So mm -hmm. uh, if I use this medication, what should I expect next cycle or two cycles down the road? And, and because of this uh, information available from these studies, I tell her, uh, you know, uh, uh, after one month, you should expect around 50% reduction in your uh, menstrual uh, blood loss. And then if you stay on it, then that actually goes to about 90% reduction. And 70% uh, of patients uh, who actually use either of those two medications uh, actually stop bleeding altogether. Together. Mm -hmm. have amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. so, so I have good data I can share with my patient. And many of my patients appreciate that to know what to expect. Absolutely, Dr. Hindi. And I think the the another really um, uh, um, reassuring um, uh, aspect of both of these medications is the safety profile, which which was presented very um, nicely in both of the large trial or both of the trials or all of the trials really for both of these medi medications, which um, reassures us as providers that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we are doing no harm, which is a first, um, you know, it's a first priority for us, particularly when, when considering a newer class of medication. Um, this, these are medications that are not associated with increased risks of, of blood clots um, or increased loss of bone, um, of bone health, as we, as we see in, in, you know, in some of the other GnRH analogs. Excellent. Uh, so we have uh, really covered a lot of grounds here. So lastly, we have, again, been trying to emphasize the importance of informed decision making for patients when managing uterine fibroids in practice. So Dr. Marsh, uh, would you please walk us through some questions that you have encountered uh, in your practice regarding the specific treatments and how you address those questions in practice? Absolutely. Um, you know, as we, I know we opened up talking about the, um, the estrogen threshold hypothesis, Dr. Alhindi, and it's, um, it's funny. I've never had a colleague walk up to me and ask me, you know, how does this, how does this medication fit within the estrogen threshold hypothesis? But very relevant to that hypothesis, I've had many colleagues um, come up and say, 
you know, and, and asked me, um, you know, what are the implications for my patient's bone health? Um, um, do I need to scan, you know, send, send my patients for a DEXA um, when starting this medication or at, you know, at, while the patient is on the medication and during that two-year window? And so, um, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to say that based on the published um, uh, randomized controlled trial data that bone health is protected um, in these agents, just starting the medication isn't an indication itself for uh, extra bone monitoring. Um, um, I've also had uh, colleagues ask me um, and patients ask me, you know, what do, do I need to or should I keep my patient on on their um, uh, on their oral contraceptive medication while while starting this? And that's a very emphatic no. Um, this is not a medication that you would use in addition to um, to other sex steroid hormone medications. Um, this should be the only medication um, that the patient is taking. Um, um, uh, that contains uh, any type of sex steroid. Um, and again, should um, by itself uh, suffice in terms of uh, treating um, primarily the heavy menstrual bleeding, but in many patients also um, having um, some, some uh, impact on, on size and, and pain. Another, I guess, question that I that I get is how long can I stay on this medication? Um, um, and it's important to reassure both our colleagues and our patients is that these these medications are FDA approved for two years. Um, some of the previous GnRH analogs that we um, uh, that are FDA approved are approved really only for six months of use. Um, um, uh, which is very limiting for, for, for many of our patients and for us as providers. Um, but these, um, both of these agents are approved for two years of use by the FDA, um, which is very helpful. Um, so um, I, I think overall, um, we have an agent that is oral, um, that is safe, that we can give um, our patients for um, uh, for an extended period of time, um, and um, can be used in, in and of themselves as um, as long term uh, as as, as long term agents, and also can be used as shorter term bridge agents for patients who who just need a moment of pause. Um, from their symptoms and relief of the symptoms to to think and consider um, you know what they what they want to do long term. Um, um, I think this is a safe, low risk um, intervention that can allow them that window. So um, back yeah. to you, Dr. Ahundi. Any other questions? Absolutely. No, uh, I think those are great insights from practice, Dr. Marsh. Uh, I would also like to encourage the audience, if they are interested in more techniques to improve communication uh, while treatment planning with patients to access this program, enhancing the value of choice for the clinical management of uterine fibroid through shared decision making. That's also available on the same uh, educational hub. So. Uh, I would like to actually summarize today's discussion by walking through our SMART goals, which are specific, 
measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That's the SMART acronym. Uh, this is what I hope that you will take away from this uh, presentation to apply in your practice. One, explore the bathophysiology of uterine fibroids. Two, you understand the relevance of the estrogen threshold hypothesis on the pathophysiology of uterine fibroids. Three, identify the mechanism of GnRH antagonists in the treatment of uterine fibroids. And four, appraise the latest data regarding GnRH antagonists aligned to the estrogen threshold hypothesis. I would also like to encourage everyone to visit the CMEO virtual education hub which provides free resources and education for healthcare providers and patients on uterine fibroids. Um, this CMAO snack is one of a four-part series that is continuous uh, uh, initiative to reinforce personalized care for uterine fibroids, update practices, and improve patient outcome. We hope that you will take advantage and participate in all of the activities in this series the other topics will be uh, covered include understanding the impact of uterine fibroids, guiding the clinical management of uterine fibroids, and incorporating shared decision-making into practice to enhance the value of choice for our patient with uterine fibroids. Dr. Marsh, it's a pleasure, and thank you again so much for teaching us today and for such great conversation. I hope our audience have learned a lot about the uh, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and the estrogen threshold hypothesis in uterine fibroids and how it has paved the way for novel treatment. To receive credit for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation. We appreciate your feedback and want to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this program and how can we uh, continue to improve and what additional topics you would like us to address. I want sincerely thank you for your commitment to continuing uh, your education on uterine fibroids. Together, we can strive to, prove, to provide the best care for our patients who have this very common condition. Thank you very much.